I'm tempted to preach from Joe's Bible. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. We appreciate you being here. Well, today we're going to press on in the Gospel of John, covering passages that we missed when we studied it back in the fall. So last week, Jesus encountered a lonely Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. And that woman was thirsty, but she didn't know that she needed much more than a drink. So Jesus offered her living water, eternal life that only comes by faith in him. And that same offer is still made today when the gospel is preached. And no matter where we're from or what we've done, our sins can be forgiven. We can be reconciled to God and we can become what God made us to be. True worshipers in spirit and in truth. But this week we move ahead to John chapter 7. Sermons from chapters 5 and 6 are available on our website and social media if you want to fill in the gaps. But I'll be honest, John chapter 7 gave me some trouble this week. After nine years of preaching almost every week, I would tell you that maybe 20% of sermons come relatively easily. The text is just so good that the sermon writes itself. But then there's another 20% of sermons that are very challenging. And then the remaining 60% lie somewhere in between. And this one fell into the more difficult category. It was one of those weeks when I had to really wrestle with the interpretation, the theology, the application, the delivery. And at times I felt like I was stumped. But it's one of those weeks where you learn to just keep working, keep praying, and keep trusting that God's word is inspired. Trusting that God's word is powerful and effective, and that somehow, some way, God is going to use this sermon for the church's good and his glory. No matter how much I struggled to put it together. But as challenging as John 7 was, the more I chewed on this passage throughout the week, one theme seemed to stick out. And that theme is the problem of unbelief. We'll talk about that here in a moment, but for now, open up to John chapter 7. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together, even if we are a little bit groggy. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. Thank you for the changing seasons. Thank you for more sunlight that's coming, new life that's coming in creation. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us through these last few days of winter. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, Thank you for new faces and old faces, uh, the opportunity to worship you with people we've been worshiping with for 10 years or or 20 years, uh, and the opportunity to worship with people who we've only known for 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, It's always wonderful to meet new brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And that's part of the beauty of the church and part of the beauty of Sunday morning is that we gather with people who we might have next to nothing in common with, but we have you in common. And so I pray that with that in mind, uh, our worship would be honoring to you today. And thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading, even chapters that are tough and make you scratch your head and you have to read them a few times over and over again. And even then, you're still not sure you get it. Uh, Lord, thank you that your word is powerful and effective and that you can change us by your word in ways that we don't even fully see and in ways that we don't even fully realize as we read it. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for this church, this time and this place and these people. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start reading John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No. He's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Feast of Booths, or depending on your translation, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents, was established by God in his law. You can read about that in Leviticus 23 if you're bored. But once every year, God's people would go up to Jerusalem to collect and celebrate the harvest. This feast would last one week, and it included ceremonies using both water, which Jesus will talk about today in chapter 7, and light, which Jesus talks about in chapter 8. Israelites would often sleep in tents during the week of this feast. And that would remind them of their time wandering in the wilderness after the exodus. So as Jesus' brothers prepare to go up to Jerusalem, they encourage him to join them. There are going to be a lot of people there at one time, Jesus. This would be a great platform for you to show off your supposed power. Do some of your little tricks where everybody can see them. But Jesus refused to go with them. As we saw in chapter 2, when Jesus was interacting with his mother at Cana, 
Jesus operates on God's agenda. Nobody else's. But before we move ahead, step back for a moment and consider the context of John 7. At the end of John 6, many of the people who were following Jesus leave him. They just couldn't handle Jesus' words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We read in verse 1 that the Jews, a.k.a. the religious leaders, were trying to kill him. Verse 5 tells us that not even his own brothers believed in him. And in verses 10 through 13, we see that the crowds had mixed opinions about Jesus at best. And while they surely were present with Jesus in some capacity, you may notice that his 12 disciples are nowhere to be seen in John 7 and John 8. So if you put it all together, you could argue that this is the lowest point, at least so far, of Jesus' entire public ministry. You can't blame Jesus for saying what he says in verse 7. It really does appear that the world is against him. But we continue in verse 14. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He went up by himself, separately, privately. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. We'll stop there for just a moment. That one work that Jesus is referring to is likely the healing of the paralyzed man in John chapter 5. That became a really important flashpoint in Jesus' ministry. He healed this man who was paralyzed on the Sabbath, and maybe even more importantly, he told him to pick up his bed and walk. And from that moment on, the religious leaders' tension, their bitterness towards Jesus, really began to grow. It became a sticking point throughout the rest of his ministry, and it's probably what he's talking about here. Verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus is in the temple teaching. 
which is not really a good strategy if you're trying to keep a low profile. And he claims unique authority as one sent from God in verses 16 through 18. He exposes the religious leaders as hypocrites when it comes to God's law in verses 19 through 23. And he challenges the crowds to judge with right judgment. In short, Jesus is calling these people, presumably thousands of them, all gathered in Jerusalem at this feast. He's calling them to believe in him. Stop trying to kill him. Stop rejecting the obvious miraculous signs. Stop speculating and arguing about him. Believe in him. So what will the people do? Well, as you read on in verses 25 through 52, the response is once again mixed. The religious leaders are just as bitter as ever. They unsuccessfully try to arrest Jesus. As for the crowds, some believed that Jesus really is the Christ, but others thought he was nuts. And we don't even hear a word about what Jesus' faithless brothers think. One of the only people who even attempts to come to Jesus' defense is Nicodemus, the religious leader that Jesus spoke with under the cover of night in John chapter 3. And the situation doesn't improve in chapter 8. Jesus utters some of his sharpest criticisms of the religious leaders in that passage and has to leave the temple before they can stone him. So maybe you can see why this week's sermon preparation was a little tough. I mean, let's be honest, this isn't the most inspiring exciting and joyful passage in the gospel of john as we said earlier it seems like a low point in jesus's ministry but there is one theme that still stuck out from john 7 and while that theme isn't exactly inspiring exciting or joyful that doesn't mean it's not important to think through And that theme is the problem of unbelief. Two weeks ago, when we read John chapter 2, we didn't pay attention to the last few verses. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. They say this. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That passage is relatively foreboding. It's a bit cryptic and dark. Like in John 7, Jesus is at a feast in Jerusalem. But in some ways, that trip to Jerusalem in John 2 comes across as more productive than the trip in John 7. 
Nevertheless, in John 2, even when people seem to be believing in his name, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Even though many people believed in Jesus, in John chapter 2, Jesus knows how sinful people work. Jesus knows that faith can be fickle. We see this problem of unbelief in the Old Testament. There are wonderful Old Testament examples of faith. There's Abraham going wherever God tells him to go. Moses leading Israel across the Red Sea. And David trusting that God would save him from the wicked King Saul. But then these same heroes of the Old Testament, people of uncommon faith, can also serve as cautionary tales. Abraham didn't always obey God. Moses sinned and never got to enter the promised land. David committed adultery and resorted to murder to try and cover it up. Even Abraham, Moses, and David weren't always shining examples of belief and trust. That's because in sinners like them, and in sinners like us, faith can be fickle. That problem of unbelief continues into the New Testament. Jesus' hand-picked disciples remind us of this truth. I mean, one minute, Peter trusts Jesus enough to walk on water in a storm. And the next minute, he sinks. At one point, Judas bought into Jesus enough to follow him for some three years, but then ends up betraying him. And after Jesus fulfills his word and rises from the dead, Thomas doesn't believe until he touches Jesus's once pierced hands. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul issues warnings against idolatry and unbelief. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says that anyone who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. As long as we are still sinners, living in a fallen world, faith can be a fickle thing. The problem of unbelief remains. That problem remains even today. Even the most godly among us, those we look to as towering examples of faith, also have seasons characterized by doubt, frustration, and questions. On top of that, we all have heartbreaking and discouraging stories of fellow believers, at least we thought so, who fell away from the faith. We wonder if they ever truly believed to begin with. And while the Bible is not completely silent on that matter, And our best systematic theologies try to provide answers to that tough question. 
It's not always easy to say. We can be very conflicted people, can't we? We can relate to the man who comes to Jesus and cries out in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm sure we've all been there. Sometimes it is tempting to assume that if we were around in biblical times, we would have believed. We wouldn't be like those Israelites who saw God's power in Egypt, but then failed to trust him in the wilderness. We wouldn't be like the disciples who saw Jesus miraculously feed thousands and then worry about not having enough bread. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't fall for that. But we would be wise to remember that faith is a fickle thing. Faith includes more than just our heads. It includes our hearts. And it includes our wills. And sin, which we are all subject to and guilty of, sin corrupts all three. Head, heart, and will. So after that long and depressing rumination on the problem of unbelief, you may be wondering, do we have any hope? Well, the answer is yes. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. We read there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That sounds a lot like what we read last week in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And while the woman didn't believe at first, didn't understand this whole idea of living water, Jesus helped her along. But here, Jesus connects living water directly to another helper, namely the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us along in our lives of faith. In John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be born of water and the Spirit. In John 14, Jesus will promise his disciples that after he leaves, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will be with them and dwell in them. And then in John 16, Jesus tells his disciples that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that we as believers have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then in chapter 12, Paul even declares that 
No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. For sinners like us, faith is a fickle thing. Left to ourselves, we'd end up like the hard-hearted religious leaders, Jesus' faithless brothers, and the mostly confused crowd. But thankfully, we are not left to ourselves. There is a helper. The solution to the problem of unbelief in this fallen world is the Holy Spirit. He is like living water welling up within us. He can enlighten our closed minds, soften our hard hearts, and change our rebellious wills. The Holy Spirit helps us know the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The Holy Spirit helps us be people of faith in a world of unbelief. But how might this understanding of the Holy Spirit affect our everyday lives? Well, first, this ought to cause us to be people of humility. We did not come to faith in Christ purely on our own. We didn't believe in Jesus because we're smarter than all the people who reject him. More aware of our need than everybody else. Or more receptive than everybody else. We don't pat ourselves on the back for believing when other people didn't. God, in his grace, has helped us along. The Holy Spirit has put people and things and places in our lives to help us. And remembering that truth ought to keep us humble. Second, we can breathe a sigh of relief when it comes to sharing our faith. There's a real freedom in knowing that it's not all up to you. And it's not all up to me to convert the world to Jesus. Yes, we are the messengers. That's absolutely true. But we don't have to do all the heavy lifting The world's salvation does not depend on you having the perfect witness, the slick sales pitch, or the foolproof argument. As Jesus said in John, the Holy Spirit works to convict the world of sin. That's his job, not yours and not mine. And third, we can have hope. Because the Holy Spirit is working in the world, we can have confidence that there are people out there who do not believe right now, but one day will. We can share our faith with the hope that God really is in the business of opening minds and softening hearts and changing wills. Jesus' faithless brothers eventually came to believe. One of them wrote the book of James. If there was hope for them, then you can have hope for that friend, for that neighbor, for that coworker, for that loved one, for that child who doesn't believe. 
you can keep sharing the gospel and do so with hope. Theologians and philosophers have always tried to distill humanity's problem down to one thing, one word. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? Some say it's pride. Others say it's selfishness. Others say lack of gratitude. And those are all really good answers. However, the best answer may be what we've discussed this morning. The problem of unbelief. Unbelief is a real problem because it's only by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in him, that sinners can be saved. But thankfully, God can help. God does help. God has helped. The Father has generously given his spirit in order that sinners like us might believe in his Son. So if you already believe, stay humble because you didn't get there on your own. And stay hopeful knowing that when you share your faith with those who don't believe, the Spirit himself can work on that closed mind, that hard heart, And that stubborn will. And if you don't believe, I pray that you would believe this morning. I pray that you too would receive living water from God himself. That you would believe in God's son. With the help of God's spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. That if we fell into sin and you just just remained at a distance, at arm's length, then we would be without hope. But from the very beginning, when we fall into sin, you are at work in redeeming us, in redeeming our fallen world. And thank you that you've sent your spirit as a crucial part of that redemption. Thank you that your spirit is out there and living and moving and working in unbelievers to open minds and open ears and open hearts to the gospel, but also working in us as believers to help us be people of faith even though we can be inconsistent, even though we can be very conflicted people, even though we can be up and down in our faith and in our obedience and in our love, you really do work and you really are working to grow us. Even if it's up and down, you are sanctifying us by your spirit. And thank you for that. So Lord, again, help us be people of faith. Thank you that you've given us your spirit to mark us and set us apart as your people. That when we question our identities, when we struggle with doubt, when we struggle with questions, we can remind ourselves that we are temples of your spirit. That we are in Christ and that you've saved us. 
And Lord, help us go out into this world of unbelief, this world that's far from you, and bear witness to you well with our words, with our actions, but also relax a little bit and recognize that it's not up to us to save the world. You've got that under control. We're just participants. But Lord, help us be faithful to what you've called us to and trust you with the rest and know that you will do what you want to do. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.